it's such a big experience that it kind of it makes you appreciate the small things so much more just going home and having you know a beer and a spliff on your back porch by yourself as the sun sets you know like just like those moments are the ones that you really find yourself reflecting and you really find yourself kind of like letting it wash over you and those are the times that it's like it's those quiet moments that everything kind of like sets in on you and you really feel that you you start to reflect on those really weird memories like that time that your dad you know picked you up when you fell off the swing set and you knocked you got the knock the air knocked you know what i mean you just like focus on like or, or those little moments will start to like come to your mind and and um, I don't know if that makes sense at all. But it's, uh... You're listening to the Millennial Search for Meaning. This podcast contains adult themes and language. Before we get into the interviews, I just want to offer a brief trigger warning. We'll be talking in sometimes graphic detail about death and loss. So if that's something that bothers you, you might want to skip this episode. Being in our 20s and young 30s, we focus a lot on growing up and finding ourselves. We graduate from college, fall in love, discover our passions, and build our own families, whatever that may look like. But a true hallmark of growing up is more universal. Our parents get older too. At some point, their mortality hits you harder than it ever has before, whether it's noticing one day that their hair has gone completely gray, or helping them move out of the house you grew up in, or inevitably standing by while they face health problems. It's the holiday season, and while some of us may do a bit of grumbling when we think about family-induced arguments, too many casseroles, and the stress of spending so much time in close proximity with our childhoods, it's impossible not to be at least a little grateful if you do have a family to go back to. The reality is that as we become adults, the people who have always been adults to us are aging and more and more of our peers are already beginning to experience the loss we'll all have to face at some point in our lives. The loss of our parents and protectors. You've heard from Mark Wayne before on this podcast. He's a tough, leather jacket-wearing kind of guy who grew up in Virginia and somehow ended up in Montana to get his degree in sustainable agriculture. Now. He works on an organic farm near Missoula that is focused around helping at-risk youth connect with nature. Mark's someone I've known off and on for a number of years, but only recently did I start to get to know him better. I can't take much credit for this. He was the one who first reached out when I started this project. And he's the one who continues to show up with kind words and favors out of the blue when it's most needed. But just a few years ago, before we connected, Mark lost his father after watching him struggle for years with alcoholism. 
He says that this experience is what changed his outlook and made him value friendships so strongly. Well, the signs of his alcoholism started gradually. But I would say that it was significant still. Like, dude always enjoyed a drink, but he never got drunk that I saw. I mean, he learning stories from my mom and stuff he did when he was younger and everything, but I never saw my dad drunk until I was, uh, it was like my freshman year in high school. That's when I really remember the change. And I think it was because, you know, my, my sister's well older and my brother was already moved out of the house and I had pretty much displayed at that point, like, I was good, man. I was smart. I was in, you know, honors classes and stuff. I wasn't, even though I was doing, I was raising hell on my own time, like, he, that wasn't coming back on the house, you know? Like, I was getting good grades. I was going to school. I wasn't, like, the cops weren't bringing me home, like, and I think it was kind of at that point when he sort of took, like, I think he was just, like, staving off his issues and his demons for a long time, and I think that they were starting to catch up to him, and I think once it got to the point where I looked like I was probably going to be okay, he just kind of, like, didn't have the strength anymore to, like, fight that stuff off. And so it would it would start, it would be Friday nights, my mom, my mom would always go visit her dad, and Friday nights my dad would start, um, he would get fucked up, like, fucked up drunk. And I'd never seen that before. And I had been fucked up drunk at that point. So it was like, I knew what it was. You know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't some sort of like abstract thing. It yeah. was like, shit, like my dad is hammered. Did you do anything? Like, did you talk to your mom about it? Or were you kind of like, because I'm sure you were close to your dad. So maybe you wanted to yeah. protect him a little bit from your mom. Like, yeah. you didn't want to create any drama there. Yeah, I think I held on to it for, for a little bit. I think I held on to it for a little bit. I think I talked to my dad first because there were a lot of conversations that I had with him where it was like, hey, man, like, your drinking is getting straight up out of control, man. Like, I'm really worried about you, uh, you know. And he would always just be like, yeah, I know, I know. It's okay, though. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll like, slow down. I'll slow down. Um, never I'll quit, but definitely, like, I'll slow down. Um, but, you know, it, it got to a point that it was pretty impossible to hide. It's not like my mom is a stupid person. So, like, she, she knew what was up, and that was one of the reasons why she was spending more time away was because she didn't want to fucking deal with it anymore. You know? One, I felt like all of a sudden there was this responsibility thrust on me, which... Nobody put on me. I totally took on myself. But it was like very rapidly those roles re were reversed. This strong, like caring man who used to take, like, you know, whenever I'd break my bones, I was a rough kid. So, like, I was always getting fucked up. And my dad was always the one that was, you know, seeing, like, whether or not it was broken or sprained or, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of stuff. And, and so there was that immediate trauma that was just, like, fuck, I'm, you know, 16, 17 years old, and all of a sudden, like, these roles have switched. Mm -hmm. And then during the week, it'd be okay. Like, most of the time, it'd be okay. He would still be my dad. But then there would be, like, these weekends that would come around, and it's just like, holy shit, like, I've got to take care of this guy. And it was very much confronting his mortality and realizing 
while still being hopeful that it was bad. It was really, really fucking bad. And it was like, this is an addict. This is a person that, it, like, I've seen drug addicts before, and, like, this is that. Like, this usually doesn't turn out so well. Sixteen, seventeen. Uh, it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Um, he's not just getting drunk on the weekends anymore. You know, it was Friday night, and then it became Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then you know he'd start getting drunk during the week, and then um, you'd find like you know I'd go to get a tool or something out of his work truck and see a vodka bottle in his car. You know, I would typically always spearhead these conversations and it was always pretty much the same shit. Like, it was just like, you know, like, we care about you. Your drinking is getting to the point where it's affecting your life. It's affecting your health. We're worried about you. Like, why like, can't you just stop? Yeah. Like, we'll all support you. Like, if you need to get help, if you want to go to AA, if yeah. you want to go to rehab or whatever, we'll help you. Like... <clears throat> Why can't you just stop? And he just couldn't really stop. You can tell he was deeply affected by it. He was very hurt that he hurt us. But he also wasn't really willing to quit. You know, so he, he would always say, like, he'd cut back, he'd cut back, he'd do this or do that. And, like, just never, it would last maybe for a week or two, and then he'd, you know, get plastered again. And so, yeah, I got fucking pissed. I was super fucking mad. Um, I was mad at him. I was mad at my mom for, for not being around. I was mad at my brother for bailing. Like, he was supposed to be my big brother, man. I'm like, fuck him. Fuck him for not being around. Fuck my mom for not being around. Fuck my dad for not giving a shit. Like, fucked a lot of them. Like, yeah, I was mad. I was really fucking angry. Um, he, would, he, would, he would try to quit, and he would go cold turkey. And that would, he was so strung, like, addicted at that point, that would mean he'd be in bed for, like, three days just like full on DTs like sick of shit and it would get to the point that he was so addicted that he couldn't actually go cold turkey without risking death like there were like a couple different occasions where he tried to go cold turkey where like you know on the like my mom was obviously like taking care of him but then like on the third or fourth day like she'd, he'd be like uh, like his heartbeat was like super rapid his breath was very shallow like he was fucking dying and so they'd have to go, like, take him to the hospital so that he could, like... And they would, like, give him alcohol at the hospital. Like, that's actually a thing. Like, they have alcohol at the hospital for, like, serious alcoholics so that, like... Because it gets to a point where your body becomes so dependent on it that you can't just pull the plug. My brother's gone and it's just my dad and my dad had sobered up so my dad takes me outside and he's just like look dude like he's like i'm gonna try to beat this thing i really am 
but like uh, I honestly don't know if I can and so like you're the one that's gonna have to like step up and take care of them and like he's like I know that's not fair but like that's just how it is and um, and then they lost the house that we grew up in because my dad like mishandled all the finances and everything yeah. and it had been going that way for a while and and at this point, my mom had separated from him and was living with her dad. And she wouldn't divorce him because she was like, look, I love you. I only want to be with you, but I can't be but around this. this. Yeah. yeah, I can't yeah. be around this anymore. And so it obviously like got worse from there. Like He was just shit-faced. He would just like skip work for weeks. And it was like, that was the time that I remember it being the most, that was when I knew he was dying. I went back and he was like he could barely like lift a box you know like a 20 pound box and then that was that was when like I hadn't actually I didn't even realize at the time but I hadn't like cried in like over a year probably and then I was just like sitting in this empty house by myself just like eating a bowl of my favorite childhood cereal that my mom bought me because she was really sweet and like it's like peanut butter Captain Crunch and I hadn't eaten it in forever and she was just like and I just wanted to stay at the house, you know? Yeah. Like, I was just like, I'm, the last time I'm going to stay in the house, like, I grew up and I want to stay here. Like, a week after that, my mom called and was just like, hey, your dad is in the hospital again and it's really bad. Um, and basically what had happened was... He had gone on a bender, which at this point was not uncommon for us to not hear from him for a little while. But, like, we hadn't heard from him for, like, three days, and his voicemail was full. And it was like, okay, this is bad. And so my mom went over to check on him. I had a key to his place, got in, and he was laying on the floor of his room, which was hardwood. And he was like, there was just, like, a puddle of blood around his head. And he'd been there for, like, two or three days. And he was, like, barely alive. Um, So, obviously, they got him to the hospital, and he was, like, already on the verge of, like, full organ shutdown. And, um, you know, because he was just dehydrated, malnourished. Like, at this point, he wasn't really eating at all, like, in general. Remember, like, the doctor took it, like, took us into a side room on, like, the fifth or sixth day, and laid out this like the prognosis which was pretty much like at that point like best case scenario he'd be in an assisted living facility for the rest of his life with people feeding him applesauce and my dad made it really really clear that that was something that he never wanted so we were looking at potentially having to like put him on hospice care so we had to talk to the palliative care nurse who's this person it was incredibly sweet so wonderful Which is basically the person that you talk to and it's just like, yeah, okay, so we're going to let this person die. What's that going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's when, yes, yeah, so the doctor has us in this side room and my mom, uh, like, she just starts fucking crying. And she's like, I'll never forget the way she looked up at me. Like, I've got my arm around her, I'm holding her, and she just looks up at me and, like, she was 
it was like absolutely a role reversal kind of thing where like she was looking at me for and at one point i see the nurse walk by and she's standing in the doorway like fucking crying and like she didn't like i woke up and saw her and when she saw me she kind of like you know collected herself and walked on but then i saw my mom and my brother and like they were both like i just knew based off of their faces like it was like it's I don't know like I wouldn't normally like subscribe to this sort of shit but it just like I can only describe it the exact way I experienced it and like the way that I saw their faces and the way that their body language was like I just fucking knew I knew that was it I knew that they knew that was it and so I just like w- like popped up out of my chair walked over and the three of us without any words just like walked over and stood by the side of his bed and because at that point his breathing had his breathing had been aspirated for like a day at that point almost and that's when it's like your breathing starts to aspirate it's basically like really shallow breath you've got fluid in your lungs like that's like one of the end signs pretty much um but like his eyes he was still there and like he like kind of looked scared and so the three of us are just like standing there arm in arm pretty much and my mom just like leans over and it's like strokes his hair and just you know again exemplifying why my mom is just like one of the strongest people i've ever met was just like like eric it's okay like me and the boys are gonna look out for each other it's okay to let go like it's okay and they fucking looked at each other and then she closed his eyes and then he took like two more breaths he fucking died Last winter, I spent more time with my parents than I have since I was a kid. I was living close to them, in our family cabin about 30 minutes from the house I grew up in. So we hung out a lot. Dinner, movies, random errands, hikes. My parents are aging well, but yes, they are aging. All this time that I was out in the world learning and traveling and moving and navel gazing, they were at home continuing on with their routines, despite a few changes. Their path was a little more worn and a little more comfortable. It was hard not to start envisioning what could happen as they got older. After all, it was reality. were divorced when I was two um, and my mom got full custody when I was five uh, my dad kind of went through um, a rough patch just in his personal life no judgments obviously you know, right. everyone has their thing um, and for a long time we weren't that close um, and uh, then um, when I graduated college we started getting really close and then when I moved to Massachusetts, we got super close. Um, yeah, that's interesting. We were talking a lot last time we spoke about 
how, like, being away from, like, your family kind of just makes you appreciate it a lot more, and in some ways, like, makes you closer because it kind of forces you to actually, like, do the talking instead of just being around each other. Yeah, isn't that the bitch of it? (laughs) Yeah, that definitely is. Tolly Olson and I have something like 197 friends in common from college. But we didn't meet until a random Wednesday last winter at a bar in Missoula. Which isn't that crazy now that I think about it. He joined our group, and later on we stepped outside to smoke a cigarette. I was shocked to learn that his dad had recently passed away. After a heavy conversation, we were interrupted by a drunk passerby. But we met up a few weeks later when Tolly invited me to the radio station where he worked to do some recording. I'd been wanting to follow up with him about how he was processing the tragedy, but I didn't know how to bring it up. Turns out, he wanted to talk about it. Which is sort of how I got the idea for this episode in the first place. The fragility of our parents is a difficult topic, one we often, understandably, shy away from. When cutting this episode, I even found myself hesitating right up until the last second. But for those who've experienced it, especially in their 20s, it becomes a defining fact of our lives, and that warrants a recognition, a discussion, and a chance to tell their story. So um, what what exactly, what were the circumstances of his passing? Uh, Yeah, so he had a a blood clot in his heart, and it was the kind of kind of clot, uh, they call it the Widowmaker, and it's something that you just wouldn't know that you had unless you regularly went to, like, a cardiologist. And so that day that he died, he went fishing on the Bighorn and then came back and was doing some, he was installing a fence at his house that he and my stepmom just built, and he went to bed, like, at 8.30 every night, and then woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and then it just burst, um... And, like, the coroner told me it was, so, it was so large that he had no idea what happened. So, I mean, to be honest, I mean, everyone's going to die, and that's a hell of a way to die, so. Yeah, that is, uh, what do you mean by a hell of a way to die? Like, a bad it, way or a good way? Oh, I think, it's a, I think it's a great way. You know, he, he got to do what he loved, you know, fishing was his passion, and, um, and died at home. And shit, rather than in a hospital bed. Yeah, that absolutely, I mean, that is, that's much better than, like, a slow, lingering type of death. What did, um, tell me a little bit about his career. Yeah, so, mm-hmm, he did a couple things. Um, so he got his degree in history, which is kind of where I got my love for history and politics, um, but then didn't use it at all, and then started, um... He just became a fishing guide on the Bighorn River, which is like uh, one of the best fly fishing rivers in in America. And he was like he was their big guide. He did the high profile clients, um, and he was really good at his job and loved it too. He was he taught he taught me about passion also. Um, and so yeah, that's what he did. He he uh, fished for a living. He always told me to find something that I like to do and do it. You know, he was like, I've never worked a day in my life. Um, He also went to Iraq um, from late 2003 to 2007. Um, And he was a civilian contractor doing like gravel work. Um, And that was really hard for me. And actually when, when he left, I was 13. And I remember the day that he left. Um, 
And that was really hard on me. Um, Cause we had just started to kind of, that was actually kind of the um, reason that we started talking again. Cause up to that point, I saw him maybe twice a year. Yeah, what was that like to have him suddenly, like, or not suddenly, but to gradually have him come into your life again as you got older? I mean, it was great. It was. It's. It's crazy how much how much alike we are to our parents, even though that my formative years weren't necessarily spent with him. But then, you know, I don't know. I guess this is something that I think people take for granted who have parents that are still together. <laughs> is. Uh, is, is that, you know. So it was really cool for me to see how much in common we had. As far as the grieving, pro- like, the grieving process, what do you think was important for you during this time? Like, when you really didn't have the closure? I think it was important for me to accept the fact that I was feeling bad about it and try to not hide it and confront it. And like sometimes that means like going out of the river and like thinking about fishing with him and just like losing it for like 20 minutes. And then, um, you know, listening to some tunes that we used to listen together and then, you know, thinking about him. But I think it was just important for me to not, not, I don't know, like to, it was important for me to not try to put it on the back burner um, because it was such a, it was such a, you know, like probably 20, 30 years now when I look back, when I think back to what I was doing in the first half of 2016 when I was 25, like, it's going to be the number one thing that I think about, you know? It's going to be, oh, that's when my, that's when my dad died. And, um, and I feel that's going to be a point that's going to be like kind of a defining point in my life forever, you know? Just like it is for anyone, I think, when they lose a parent. You know, it's like kind of like that's like a, that's the chapter and then the next chapter begins, you know. We set, my stepmom and I set the date um, um, and it's April 30th um, and we had people, like I said, from like all over the world come. He was a really well-known man in that community, in the fishing community, and the, really the sportsman community too, he's a great hunter, um, and uh, we all met at my, at their place, um, for like, so kind of a preview, and my stepmom actually took me around back to their, to their garden, and pulled out this, like, wooden canoe that she made, and um, we took his ashes, um, and I, I took like a cup, and she took a cup, and then we put the um, most of the ashes in in this canoe that she built and then put some sage and some marijuana <laughs> and uh, some tobacco um, in this little canoe. Then we all, yeah, we went to the river and I played trumpet and I played the Amazing Grace. He always loved that tune. And um, so I played trumpet while my stepmom rode out to the middle of the river, and then um, she lit it on fire in front of, like, you know, the entire crowd, and everyone was silent, and uh, put it perfectly in the middle of the river, and we just stood there and watched it go down the river until we couldn't see it anymore. What was going through your head? Relief. (laughs) It was, like, symbolism for, like, obviously his passing, but it was also about like I felt that it was about maybe this sounds a little selfish to people that are going to listen to this but it was also it was like I finally had that closure and that was the closure was seeing like his ashes burning on fire go down that river
Grieving isn't selfish, it's self-love. And to me, it seems like the ultimate compliment to a lost parent's memory is that their child has the skills to cope with struggle and move forward in a healthy way. But what if there isn't a clear path forward? What if it's not as black and white as life and death, but rather some gray area in between? How do you balance the struggle that is navigating your 20s with the illness of a parent? The last person I spoke to on this topic was Charlotte Nickel. Charlotte actually has a unique experience with parent mortality. When she was four, her dad passed away. And then, 10 years later, her stepdad also passed away. But I wanted to talk to her about her mom. Charlotte grew up in Missoula, then left for college and stayed away for about a decade. And she returned last year after finding out that her mom had been diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a type of cancer where the treatment isn't always clear and the symptoms aren't always visible. It affects everyone differently, requires a bunch of different treatments, and it's hard to predict. So your situation now is that you are helping your mom kind of sort out these logistical things. Um, yeah. And like clean out her house and stuff like that to kind of ease her mind a little bit, right? Cause yeah. She... Well, I have been... Like, it's just a really weird time for me right now because I'm looking for direction in my life and trying to figure out my life and what I'm going to be doing because I'm, like, in my mid-late 20s. And uh, I wasn't very happy in the job that I was in right before this, right before moving to Missoula. And so I was going to move to a different town where I had friends. I was going to move back to Sacramento and like try to get happy again and like go from there but then my mom said that she needed me because she was diagnosed with cancer and like doesn't really have that good of like moral support here or just support here and she wanted to figure out things with my brother and wanted me to be part of that even though she doesn't want to burden me with being in charge of my brother but she wanted me to be helping make the decisions of what should be done and uh and I thought that was good and that'd be great because it's like giving me a definite like structure and Mm -hmm. stuff to do with my life because that's what I've been missing or like what I need is structure to be like here's something to do yeah exactly but me coming here to Missoula to help all these like structural things was really more of me like coming here to be moral support and there's not like set tasks to do really it's kind of just being made up and so it's not been that great for me yeah and it's like are you legit like an actor in these decisions or are you kind of just doing whatever your mom wants really in the end well, now I'm, yeah. I've just been, like, don't even, like, it's all, like, thinking of all that stuff is so overwhelming for me that I've been, like, kind of trying to ignore it. And and my mom feels bad that I came here and then I'm, like, in a bad mood. And she's like, you can leave if you want. Like, you don't have to be here. I just wanted you to but it doesn't really matter like I know that you're not happy and so you don't have to be here and I'm like no I want to be here like I want to help 
with these decisions or like I want to help during this time but like Um, yeah but I'm just like I don't really know how much I can help her at this point and it's like really sad that she's like going through this and I know that she's like very stressed about it but there's not like set things that I can really do um next week we're going to Seattle because the doctor here said that the like the tumor shrunk a little bit from the treatment but now it hasn't been shrinking and she still has all the symptoms of like that she felt before in general that like brought her to this diagnosis and so um she wants to try doing chemotherapy and my mom's like I'm never gonna do chemotherapy like there's no way that I'll ever do that and so we're gonna go to Seattle to like ask the more qualified doctor what he thinks and so it's all kind of a bit up in the air and I feel Mm -hmm. like that has been like that since I've been here with her it's like everything is up in the air like the days of her treatment or like what the treatment's doing and all that stuff is not very definite if my parent were sick and I was in this period where I'm like, I can come back. Then, But then you have to make the decision to leave again. Yeah. It's like, well, how long? This could go on for years. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, is that she doesn't look sick. And like, there's a lot of people around that are like more sick. And you can like see their sickness better. Or like, like there, it's like my mom isn't going through chemo. Like, I don't know. I, I like this week, you know, if, if she was doing chemo, it would be like on week four she's gonna like throw up a lot and on this week it'll be this and Mm -hmm. she's doing like was doing this other treatment that is different for every person and and she's like not losing her hair like it's not stuff like that or she's not throwing up and having diarrhea so it's like I can't really see your symptoms from your sickness I dealt with my grandparents getting old and like seeing that and Mm -hmm. moving them from a condo to an assisted living facility and it wasn't the hard part wasn't well it was hard to move them like that was like mentally taxing to like have that closure on their like independence life like that was like mentally taxing and just like hard logistically but what was hard on top of that is dealing with the family around all of them and like the siblings around them and their sentimental issues with their parents getting older so I was already prepared for that kind of um yeah um and so then I'm like okay like I know that's gonna happen or like I know that my mom's gonna die or just moving them from their like condo to the assisted living facility i was like shoot when my mom dies like we have a big house with a lot of stuff like what am i gonna do with that like it made me like really stressed out um because it was like already so stressful for my grandma she like wanted to keep everything like everything was like very sentimental to her and 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 i like kind of see that too i'm like oh yeah like yeah she wasn't just like yeah let's just give it all the goodwill she was like this spoon that I saved was from this and this was from this and like yeah. it's like you can't keep all that stuff um do you feel any like fear about your mom being sick like on an emotional level like do you feel like some of your anxiety is sort of like around 
and I don't want to like use that word anxiety like I don't know what you're feeling but you know I guess what's the emotional toll of her sickness on you besides just you having or you kind of feeling like obligated to be here and not sure of where you should be um yeah uh, I don't know um I just I think it probably would I'd probably have more of an emotional toll if I could like see her sickness better yeah you know and so I just am like okay like you're tired all the time like I don't know yeah it's just like I yeah just I don't really have a thing except for I just feel stuck here because I feel like if I moved to Alaska and like got a full-time job then if something happened then I wouldn't be here and I'm like the only person to be here and I feel like she's like lost a lot of her friends in town like she's just like not communicating with people so I just feel like you're not okay right now and I'm here and so it's like I could Like, what can I do to, like, make it so that I feel okay? So, yeah. Maybe I'm spinning this whole topic into just another millennial learning experience. But you know what? It is about us. It's about how we deal with these things. How we deal with these things determines what happens to the world. Our futures both micro and macro. Talking about our processes doesn't change our individual or collective timelines, but maybe it can make the time we have here a little more meaningful. I experience a lot less anxiety about the choices that I make and where I'm gonna go or what I'm gonna do because I realize that, you know, I get hit by a fucking bus tomorrow and there, yeah, I feel that way. I feel you, you experience less anxiety. There, the, the stakes in a weird way, even though, you know, I've seen what I think in the past was something that prompted a lot, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, a lot of hesitance. You know, the thought of death, the thought that this life is finite, the thought that, fuck, am I making the right choice? Is this the right way to go? You know, having confronted that and actually seen it as a reality, tasted it, touched it, you know, been consumed by it, it's like, ah, fuck it. You know, it's going to happen. Just do the best you can. You do the best you can with the information that you've got. It's all so much more beautiful when you have a very concrete, tangible sense that it is finite. This episode, you heard from Mark Wayne, Tolly Olson, and Charlotte Nickel. Music by Kai Engel and Circus Marcus. Theme music by Emmett Orr. If you like this episode, be sure to leave a review on iTunes. I'm Mariah Orr, by the way, and I'm still on the road, currently near Joshua Tree, headed for the Grand Canyon and then Phoenix. You can follow the journey on the millennialsearchformeaning.org or on pretty much all social media at More Is Out There.